Hey everyone, uh, a couple things I wanted to address before we jump into the podcast. Uh, the first one is that I've decided to make an email dedicated just to the podcast. That way I can separate it from the business. And instead of sending to info at Weathertop, um, the new email for the podcast will be farmersledge at weathertopfarm.com. And so that's F-A-R-M-E-R-S-L-E-D-G-E at weathertopfarm.com. And this is, of course, I'm interested in the feedback loop of hearing from people. And, you know, this is whether, you know, you want to say, hey, it sucked, whether or it was a great podcast, or if you have questions, and especially like, would like this more clarified, or hey, some pushback on something. And I think that would be great. Um, I want to even, I've been thinking about maybe if I get some relevant questions and some good ones that I could even dedicate a good five, ten minutes at the beginning of a podcast and address some of these things and use them as springboards to to delve into subjects a little bit deeper. Um, or I could even, if I had enough of them, maybe even dedicate a whole podcast to answering questions or so. But regardless, um, I think that's a great uh, way of getting in touch with me and maybe we can even be able to um, delve deeper into some of these things. And the second order of business is essentially a preface to the podcast. I've had some feedback that it was um, a little bit dense and maybe not quite as accessible as it could be. And I toyed with the idea of redoing it and maybe um, making things a little bit more straightforward. But in the end, I, I decided maybe a preface was the better way to go to give people a sense of where I was trying to go and some of the reasons why I was conveying some of the ideas that I was. And I do realize that I I ask a lot of my audiences, um, especially patience-wise. I I very intentionally take uh, circuitous routes of trying to get across what I do, and it's you know very much on purpose that I don't have these very linear logical sort of incremental steps to, um, in what I'm trying to convey. But, and I think that's very much in line with, with synergistic systems and, and webs and, and a whole bunch of concepts coming together to make a whole. And in, in one sense, if, if the audience can have enough patience to sort of just soak it in, soak it in, hold out, hold out, um, and not get too impatient with not knowing quite where I'm going yet. And hopefully in the end, there's this sort of this gestalt where it all comes together and it makes sense um, what I was trying to convey and why these other pieces of the puzzle were were put there. But a couple things to keep in mind that I think might help so that you have maybe have some hooks to kind of hang some of the ideas that I'm throwing out. And it revolves, well, you have to remember for me, like not just in in my philosophy of regenerative agriculture, but pretty much in all philosophy that I think is the concept of beyond mitigation. And this is extremely important to me in many areas of life, but for the podcast too, like that was the whole reason behind the name, Can Your Beans Do That? So if, you know, we have so much, um, so many problems that we try to, we don't really have very good answers to. And we tend to approach things and the best we usually end up being able to do is some sort of limiting damage. And this comes across very much when you ask people, well, what's what's a very green thing to do? What's a very ecological-minded thing to do? And the answer typically that you get back is, oh, we need to recycle and reuse, you know, and that's kind of the, the big, you know, concept behind um, behind environmentally friendly stuff. And that's really, I mean, sure, that's great, but that's really kind of a pathetic answer if that's really the answer, because that's only sort of limiting uh, the damage that we're doing. So we're maybe going to produce less plastic, you know, maybe we're going to not have, you know, you know, the rate of plastic being added to the 10th continent in the sea, you know, or, or whatever it is, you know, the recycling and reusing is just a way of, of limiting amount of things that are made. We haven't really given an answer to pollution or an answer to the climate change or the carbon problems or all kinds of things, right? And so can your beans do that? You know, I went into you know, the whole mitigation thing was in relation to that, the, the, this little chart you have of, of the water. 
And so that was where, you know, you had the takes a thousand, maybe thousand five hundred gallons of water to make one pound of, you know, protein of beef. And it takes 50, you know, gallons of water to make a pound of, of, of beans. And if you're in an extraction model, and if you're in this kind of mode of just resources and water is a resource, and we just got to use things, then the best you can ever do really is just try to use less and try to use the minimal amount, right? And so my argument there was I went into the cow and then the ruminants and how, how what a beautiful thing they are in a synergistic system where, you know, if you put them and you manage them right on your pasture, they're conditioning the soil, you know, they're increasing organic matter, they're sequestering carbon, they're, they're keeping all this bacteria and mycorrhizal alive, they are, you know, they're sequestering water, they're all kinds of wonderful, great things. And this is a beautiful system that in the end, if I've been able to flip the paradigm around, it's actually kind of almost, you know, disappointing that there was really bad math. You know, it's bad math that it was 1500 gallons because it's too bad. It'd be great to have put 1500 gallons of water, taking that fresh water out of a stream that would have ended up in the sea and you put it through this cow and it ends up, you know, becoming available for all the bacteria and the grass and the plants and, you know, and, and you've ameliorated it by putting nitrogen in it and other minerals in it, you know, and putting it in the synergistic system, you know, it's almost a disappointment that the math is bad, that you don't have a thousand gallons that you could put to make one pound of protein, because then we'd actually be, uh, you know, sequestering carbon at an even faster weight, right? So just sort of flipping things around. And I, I really feel like this is constantly a, a problem, especially in our uh, modern uh, society. And that's because we're dominated by the mind. And I really believe so. I, I, the, the way this is related to a philosophy of pleasure is that why do we end up so often being just stuck? in this really sort of infantile approach to solutions where it's just sort of this really dry mathematical equation of trying to reduce damage and we never really get plugged into synergistic systems. And so I get to the root of that and I think a lot of the root of that has to do with our sort of Cartesian dualism that I've talked about where we have this, you have the separation of mind and body. You have this, you know, there, there's no, our mind and our body are not synergistically synergistically working together, but rather they often at odds. And our society as a first world society is very dominated by the analytical, by the mind, you know, and, and, and very petty stuff, not even very deep stuff. And why is that? So I, I get into um, the first part of the, the philosophy of pleasure it has to do with self-awareness and how we became removed from ourselves. And only when we are being able to, you know, the I is able to speak of the me and be removed in such a way, could you have the separation from the whole system and have just an answer that was just of the mind. So that's important throughout the um, podcast and remembering that this is all in orientation to whether things are just mitigation or actually part of a real solution, actually part of something of sustenance, of something of, of substance, something of, you know, that's part of a system that's synergistically working towards something very positive and beneficial. And then the second part, again, has to do with this R crazy ability to analyze things is that we can take things apart. And then even if we are actually deriving some pleasure out of a out of some endeavors, we oftentimes are actually we've we've plugging on or inserting these sort of artificial pleasures onto onto these endeavors. And I get into why this is important and why these, you know, these pitfalls we need to, you know, to try to avoid. And then after I've been, you know, dealing with all these concepts, I kind of have my punchline, my gestalt. And I will, I'll try, I'm going to leave that at least for the podcast, but maybe just a few, a little bit of those concepts and why I'm getting into some of these issues may help the listener to, um, for it to be accessible. So I hope that helps. If not, just ignore it. But I hope it helps and uh, I hope uh, you enjoy it. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Today's podcast is going to be a philosophy of pleasure. 
I've been working my way through a number of nodes that I see as interconnected nodes in the web of sustainability. And I did spend a lot of time on ecology, on environment. I did a podcast on animal welfare, last one on local and social issues. But I've left um, nutrition for the last. So the trajectory has been to leave it for last because sort of approach it with some fear and trembling because it's kind of it's where the rubber meets the road for most people and things can get quite heated actually but for me it was important that even though all these issues can stand on their own are important but that they can also provide a context for nutrition because I think that all these things work together in synergy. And I, I think synergy is a really good indication that, you know, you've hit upon a system that's that's a good system, right? So if you've got positive ramifications in on a multiple uh, dimensions, multiple levels, then you know that um, you've hit upon something good. And so I'm going to try to approach nutrition in that context. Having said that, I'm not quite there, and I want to deal with one last node on on the web before we get there. One that's very related to nutrition, but I think is important. You know, it's almost a precursor to nutrition, but it's important to establish it as an issue in and of itself, which may seem odd to people because I'm talking about taste, and I think that taste is something that's overlooked quite a bit or underappreciated, and in many ways, it's a sort of considered like a cherry on top versus actually integral to the whole issue and the whole system. But I do actually really believe that pleasure and taste is a pleasure, that that is a, a, one of the indications of synergy. And so in order to do that, I want to sort of develop a philosophy of pleasure. I grew up in a fairly conservative and religious home, and I'm very appreciative of my upbringing. There's a lot of great things. I grew up in a very loving family. But the subculture of conservative Christianity has some dysfunctionalities in it, and one of the primary ones, I think, is their stance on pleasure. Dominating in their stance on pleasure is a reaction to instant gratification, and, and definitely there are good reasons for that. Instant gratification they're concerned that we don't fall into the trap of addiction. So addiction is one of those things, it's a pleasure and it's a, a desire and a pleasure that's basically the antithesis of synergy. It's one pleasure that wants to exclude everything else, right? It wants to be that one variable that is taken care of at the detriment and exclusion of all other things. A real full-blown addiction wants to, you know, say you're addicted to meth or whatnot. You begin to only want that high and you great pleasure, great reward when you're on that high. But as soon as you come down, you're pretty much going to do anything to get back on it. And so before you know it, you begin sacrificing everything. You sacrifice maybe your job, and then when you're not getting money in, then you maybe you start stealing. So you sacrifice all your your social and uh, you know family relationships, and then you begin to sacrifice your very your your health, and your teeth fall out, and your skin you're scratching your skin, and it's just it can get very very ugly. It's for very good reason that there's this very strong sentiment of you know that's warning of the dangers of instant gratification. And if we're talking about taste, then the parallel there is, is sugar and that sort of glycemic roller coaster that most people are on in this culture. And when it really becomes a true addiction, you have people who basically they need to eat and they need to get a huge dose of glucose. And science has shown, you know, that the areas of the brain are lit up, the same ones that opioids um, light up, you know, and then you're on this high and then that lasts you for a couple hours and then you just feel miserable until you've gotten more sugar, more food into you. And so that's the, the addiction that leads very quickly to obesity. And this is why I'm fairly skeptical of people who say, oh, you know, you just need to listen to your body and you know what to eat. And that very well may be true for a lot of livestock, but we've long lost instincts that are appropriate for us. And part of that is that we have a very strong instinct in us for, for sugar. I think more it's more of an issue that 
we need to see pleasure as a discipline, right? Like like a kung fu where you could like go from white belt and then try to aspire to go to, you know, eventually become a black belt or whatnot. I, and, and there may wait very well be people out there who can know exactly what they need to eat and say feel like they're deficient in something and so therefore they need to eat this or that but I for me I'm, I'm satisfied with being able to have developed uh, enough of a palate so we we know the difference between that sort of sugar quick high that's very quick and it just as soon as it's done all we can think about is getting more into us versus you know when you eat a really satisfied meal that's just nutritionally dense you know I'm able at least I feel like I've had enough of that that I can tell I'm eating something very nutrition dense and it's good and it tastes awesome and I also know that it's good because later on it's sustaining me I feel satiated I'm not still hungry and I can actually work for a long time and I I feel fine I don't you know need to eat soon after and so I do think that we need to develop a sense of you know, if pleasure as a discipline and be able to, to, to recognize what's a good and deep and long lasting sort of sustaining palate and, and what's just a pleasure quick fix taste. And so I, I do see parallels to that. But I open this up with a stance of, you know, reaction to instant gratification. And I think the problem is that, that the stance was based in fear. And therefore it was one of, of mitigation. It was one that wanted to limit pleasure, that wanted to limit desire. And there's a very general sort of suspicion of all pleasure, right? And this is, I have no doubt, is part of the heritage we've gotten from the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, I dealt with another podcast, those are the guys that, you know, saw the mind as being more important than the body. And so things of the flesh, particularly pleasures of the flesh, were not as good as pleasures of the mind, and in some cases, they took it as far as to actually downright evil. This just didn't sit well with me. And I remember being in high school and already I was already questioning things quite a bit, but it came really to a head when I, I just loved playing soccer. And I was actually pretty good at it. And I could go play soccer and just for hours and exert myself. And I would just, you know, time would go by. I would even realize how much had gone by. And I just loved the game and I always wanted to be playing. But in the culture that I was, there was sort of, if, if not always explicit, the definitely impl you know implied that really, you know, that's okay when you're young, but you should probably get to the point where maybe you decide you want to do it as a ministry, or maybe, you know, you should really tell people that, you know, you're doing this for the glory of God. And I just was not comfortable with that, you know, and I just always felt so hypocritical. Anytime it just felt so empty when I was sort of tacking on a spiritual element to it. And I just, in the end, I felt like I was actually doing a disfavor to soccer itself. And I asked a lot of questions and I was not getting very many answers. And it wasn't until I stumbled upon an author that uh, he kind of turned the whole thing of desire and pleasure on its head for me. And even though I don't come to the same conclusions that he does in a lot of areas, and I, I still I want to pay homage to this guy because he really was important to me and influenced my life quite a bit. And before I even had taken any formal education about philosophy, how to think, or logic or anything, he really taught me a lot about how to think. And I think really he had some incredible insights I just felt a sort of an integrity to the way he thought and the way he wrote. I want to pay homage to him. And this, the author is C.S. Lewis, and a lot of people know him through the Narnia series. And But he wrote tons and tons of books. And some of it's just on literature. He was a professor at Oxford on literature. And so some of it was just purely academic, and some of it was just science fiction or fantasy, whatnot. And then some of it was like philosophical and even theological some. I think I want to I want to use some of his concepts to establish the the philosophy of pleasure here and I want to try to weave two concepts together to provide a a guide or a platform for it. The first one that he wrote quite a bit about was self-awareness. And I you know most people 
have a good already understanding of this, but I just want to go through it quickly, you know, that, that we are a very strange species of animal, that we've got to the point where we were able to separate ourselves from ourselves. And so we became self-aware. We actually could have a me that the I was talking about, right? And this is a blessing and a curse. And, you know, C.S. Lewis is definitely not the only one who wrote about this, but he spoke of it being a, of a very powerful tool. It's been all through our history, but um, definitely in the Enlightenment period, right, we were able to like, analyze things and we take them into their individual parts and then we rebuild them, right? So, I mean, we've been able to do unbelievable uh, feats of technology as, as, a, as humans, you know, whether it's way back in the pyramids to today with its exponential, right, from empire state buildings to, you know, going to the moon, right? And been able to do miraculous things, right, with this ability to analyze. But it comes at a price, comes at a cost. Things don't go right. We, we've separated ourselves from ourselves, and sometimes it's hard for us to get back together. So we remain separate from ourselves. We, we actually then become oftentimes separate from, you know, our fellow man, our other people. And then we can also become very separate from the world around us. And I've even touched on this in others where talking about that we are a strange creature that has to have a stance towards nature as if we aren't part of it anymore. Well, C.S. Lewis brought this to a very personal level where he talked about it, how it was a tool where, you know, if you're in a bad feedback loop and you're in a, you know, bad pattern and bad habit, it's a fantastic way to get yourself out of it, to disrupt you, to, you know, use analysis. So the quickest way to sort of diffuse your anger, he said, is to actually think about your anger. And so suddenly you, you've jumped out of yourself, you jumped out of that emotion, and you're looking at your anger, and he said, this is great, before you do something really stupid, you know, and you're in your rage or whatnot. On the uh, other side of the of the coin, right, is that he said the quickest way to spoil a pleasure is to acknowledge that you're enjoying it. He spends a lot of time on how this gets gets tricky, right? And I think this is a very pertinent concept to our modern world because our modern world is dominated by the world of the mind. And I don't, and I don't mean like necessarily intellectual, but I mean that disruption, that analytical, right? So we're in the digital age. There's nothing more analytical and disruptive than pixels in a picture, right? You know, we have a younger generation that is documenting their whole life. And, you know, maybe as the younger generation, maybe they've been in this and been swimming in the sea for digital sea for so long that they have no problem about going in and out of sort of, of analysis and back into an experience. They'll be on Snapchat and then you take this picture of you and look, I'm on the beach. Look how much fun I'm having. And you send it to everybody. And maybe they're very capable of just jumping right back in, jumping in the waves and, and just enjoying themselves. But... I think of a huge portion of our society can't jump back in and they're stuck. They're stuck in just uh, always having to have image and, you know, show this great image and look how much fun I'm having and I'm such a witty person and a funny person. And suddenly you, you compound that with, you know, attention deficiency. So you can't go more than like five, ten minutes without having to be disrupted again and do something else. And I think that's very indicative of that our culture is incredibly dominated by the mind. C.S. Lewis interpreted it and, and saw um, this through the lens of the Genesis story. And so he saw that as a metaphor of, of the heart and the mind. You have the fruit of, of life, and that's just kind of the experience. That's the slipstream of life. And then you have the, the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Obviously, he's a person who's in pursuit of knowledge. You know, he's a professor, right? And and he actually, even the pursuit of knowledge of good and evil, he wrote a lot about ethics, right? So it's not like the fruit was bad. But for him, it was an issue of timing. And so that uh, they ate it before they were ready. So in a sense, if you think about it, right? So if to live properly or to be ethical or to do the right thing, you know, you're kind of walking on this razor-sharp 
ridge, you know, this edge that you're walking with precipice on either side. And and to way oversimplify things, right, you can have sort of the heart and that would symbolize, you know, the life and the, you know, the, the, the experience and all that. And then the mind, you know, of the knowledge. Quite a bit of the precipice on the left of the, of the heart, you know, so that, that would be like people are utterly passionate. Great intentions, but they're very passionate. And you can admire their passion. You can admire how wholeheartedly, you know, they go after something, but they're misinformed or whatnot. There's a, an incredible amount of damage done in this world by, by good intentions that just weren't quite... Well, actually, I, I you know, I talked about aid in Africa, and that's a classic, perfect example of good intentions, but just not really understanding the issues and actually causing a lot more harm. But on the other side, we have the mind, right? And we so often we have, you know, maybe we have a good idea what the right things are, but if our heart's not in it, right, it feels empty and uh, it can feel hypocritical. Basically, he's arguing, you, you know, for synergy. There has to be synergy, in a sense, for between the heart and the mind, so that what you're doing is both guided and at the same time full and, and done with love and done with not hypocritically. And this is so pertinent to today. You know, we, we live in this world of information. We have access to so much more information than we ever did, right? I mean, it's at our fingertips all the time. So that knowledge is, is there. And so often, you know, he, he, I said that C.S. Lewis saw it as a matter of timing. So often our heart, our experience isn't really there to be the foundation, to back it up, to really do these things authentically. And I think of that all the time when I get these petitions sent around, right? We all you know, I'm not necessarily saying petitions are bad, but I get this sort of feeling like, oh, we're all, we, we know about this problem, we know intellectually that it's, it's bad, and we feel kind of guilty, but these issues, you know, we take a lifetime to, to, to try to address and to, and to make better and whatnot, but, you know, we got to somehow assuage that guilt, so we just kind of sign a petition and we hope the politicians are going to take care of it somehow. And I just, I, I find C.S. Lewis and his understand things kind of grounding and say, look, you know, we got to be careful of the dangers of self-awareness and especially in the world that's dominated by information and by mind. And one of these ways that he says we can avert these dangers and, and know that we are have this sort of synergy is through pleasure. C.S. Lewis, in fact, was the f first person that kind of jarred me uh, into thinking about uh, abundance versus just mitigation. And this was an essay I, I still remember. He said, if you, in the modern day, and this is obviously writing back in the 50s and stuff, but in the modern day, if you asked leading religious leaders or ethicists, and you asked them what was the most important virtue, he said 19 out of 20 of them are going to say unselfishness. And he's like, that's not what used to be, used to be considered love, right? And so he says, see what's happened, we've switched out a negative thing for a positive thing. And he says, as if it was our going without, that was the key and the important thing. And he's like, you know, there may be a situation where to do right by someone, you actually have to forego something. But, you know, and if you're able to do that, well, great, more power to you. But really, the best case scenario is that to do right by someone, it works out that that gives you, you, you honestly and authentically enjoy doing right by someone. Whether you're giving up something or not, then you can have that feedback loop that you actually take pleasure in doing right by someone and someone gets the reward from that and there's this feedback loop. And so it was so refreshing to have an answer that was basically based in abundance. So he turned uh, this whole issue totally on its head for me, right? He was not at all adverse to pleasure and desire. He said, the problem is not desire. The problem is that we desire too little and not enough. So, you know, if we are um, in the Kung Fu of pleasure, right, in that discipline of pleasure, actually he had a phrase for it, and it was uh, the organ of appreciation. 
the problem is that we we settle for for petty we settle for for small pleasures whatnot right and because we don't really understand we don't quite get we haven't learned the kung fu we haven't gotten to be black belts to understand the deep the sustaining the real meaningful the long-term pleasures This will be the, the sort of the second pillar of, of of what I'm getting at for my philosophy here of pleasure, and it's it's has to do with rewards and pleasure and and rewards that are tacked on and rewards that are integral and natural to to the act itself. And in his own words, he says there are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it, and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Right, we get that very easily, I think, when, particularly if we talk about uh, prostitution. Prostitution is paying money for sex, or, uh, you know, maybe trying to think that we're paying money for love. And it's just, we all can kind of recognize there's a disconnect there. But he says it's not just paying money for this. This can also be uh, have to do with duty, right? We would, you would never be like, okay, well, I'm going to do this for you because because I'm supposed to, because I make love to you, because I, it's my duty as a spouse or whatnot, right? I mean, if I ever <laughs> said, well, I'm doing this because I'm your spouse, I'd, I'd get slapped in the face, right? He was trying to say that basically the opposite is true, right? It's the pleasure you take into someone that is the ultimate compliment, right? And he, he goes even farther. He says that the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Right, and that works really well when you're talking about love, right? And in fact, if you think about pleasure in the context of of love, and you think it's it's a feedback loop, it becomes the currency of the feedback loop, right? And if you know if you're just not into it, your partner is probably not going to get into it, right? But if if you are taking pleasure and you're aroused by your partner, that's an incredible aphrodisiac, right? And then that causes you to to take pleasure in them, and then it's this feedback loop that can build positively, right? But obviously, he's not just talking about sexual right he's talking about pleasure and all all kinds of things right so whether it's soccer or whatnot He's very careful to say, look, we got to be careful because there's byproducts to all these these endeavors that we do and and, and pleasures that we participate in. But we can't, our motivation can't to do these things can't be for those byproducts because in a sense that's not the true pleasure that goes with it. That's that would be in the category of of the mercenary, right? So, like for soccer, right? There's all kinds of great benefits by playing soccer. You exert yourself, you get physical um, exertion, so you right your fitness and you 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 feel good after you mean endorphins while you're doing it, right? You get the thrill of the competition, and you know it's an art form that you're excelling at, right? And this is why I just I can't do it in the gym, right? Because I, I didn't play soccer for all those things. Maybe I, I got fit because of it, but those just aren't very good motivations, right? And this is true whether you're talking about soccer or you're talking about literature or you're talking about you know arts or even like carpentry trades or teaching whatnot, right? He delves into it some and he talks about how there may be intermediate steps, right? So you, there can be times when you put in an artificial um, incentive and reward system b because there's no way that you would be there right away. So that was in the context of education, right? He's like, sure, you put some mercenary rewards in there and so you, you give people grades, you know, or maybe there's some sort of um, social pressure or maybe there's even punishment, you know, if you don't do certain things right. He said, but the, the goal, and we can't forget that the goal is to have have true appreciation right so he's like nine out of ten this will never take but there's going to be that one out of ten that it's going to take and hopefully those mercenary steps are going to fall away and then they're going to truly enjoy the literature for literature's sake you know or math for math's sake or history for just because you love to be a, a history buff right and the one of the main dangers of mitigation is that the end goal is forgotten Right? And this is the problem with the stance of instant gratification. 
right? Because it's all about prevention. It's all about uh, trying to keep desire at bay, right? And in the end, it becomes impotent. Think about the addiction again, right? So you, this is an addiction that in, in C.S. Lewis's eyes has been able to have, you have a desire, you do the act, you get the reward, and you get pleasure from it, and it's consummated. You have your meth, uh, you, you know, you just, you're dying to get it, you, you take your meth and you get that high, and you take total pleasure in it. That endeavor is in its, it's totally consummated, and it's in its full glory. Right? And then you say, look, hey, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> I mean, they're already in such a state where they, you know, their mind is just, it's a slave now. It's, it's not even working anymore, right? And so, like, how is just advice or admonition going to even compete? How is it going to, it doesn't have power to fight that sort of addiction. Or think about maybe an easier one because that's pretty tough. But think about maybe your sugar, right? And you're in your you're addicted to to bad food, right? And and you, same thing happens, right? You you get this quick feedback loop that's intact, and yeah, man, you you're hungry and you want some uh, you know some food and you want kind of some crappy food and and you have the desire. And you eat the sugary whatever or refined food, whatever it is, and you get the reward and you get the high, right? And then that, so that act is in its full glory, right? To go out there and say, look, hey, you know, these are all the bad things from eating sugar that happens to your body and you're going to get diabetic and you're going to, you know, have all these issues or you're going to get cavities or, you know, whatever you're, you're saying, it, you're appealing to the mind and you're actually, you're appealing to to pit the mind against the heart, right? To pit the mind against the body. And, you know, it, sometimes someone can actually come out of an addiction through that, but that's very rare, I think, you know? And and so what C.S. Lewis is saying is that really a true alternative and a true answer is not sort of like trying to limit and mitigate, but you got to fight it with something very real and very profound, Deep pleasure is the path to health. It doesn't even have to be this very complicated esoteric thing, right? He's like, you have someone who's totally depressed and they happen to go for a walk in the woods. Maybe they even did it for mercenary reasons. Maybe they even did it for the byproducts. You know, oh, well, yeah, I really should get some exercise and I should really, you know, uh, you know, got to get some cardiovascular and I got to move and maybe I even maybe burn some calories. But suddenly they go out there and, the, you know, the noises and the birds chirping or whatever, and then the smells, and all of a sudden they find, or they don't even realize, but suddenly they're enjoying themselves. And he says, he, he has a phrase, surprised by joy. In fact, he, he wrote a whole book called Surprised by Joy. But, you know, you, it just kind of comes, and suddenly you just, you, you're lost, and you realize, oh, I've been walking for a half hour now. I just utterly enjoyed that experience. He says, that enjoyment is one of the best foods for the soul. He's saying, you know, we have to really be careful, right? We, we, we need that authentic, authentic, deep pleasure that came from the, the act, you know, that's integral to it, and it gets consummated, and then that's also in its full glory, so to speak, and that'll actually can compete with the petty desires, right? And so he said, but you have to be very careful, right? Everyone wants to be someone who's, you know, witty and smart and knows you know, knows lots of things and whatever and wants to have, you know, a habit of mind, so to speak, and, and be cultured. And he says, whoa, whoa, wait. Let me read you a little more. He says, I can well imagine a lifetime of such enjoyments leading a man to such a habit of mind, but on one condition, namely that he went to the arts for no such purpose. Those who read poetry to improve their minds will never improve their minds by reading poetry, for the true enjoyments must be spontaneous and compulsive and look to no remoter end. The muses will submit to no marriage of convenience. The desirable habit of mind, if it is to come at all, must come as a byproduct unsought. So, I love the way he's a wordsmith with, those, with his writing. He's talking about how pleasure is so essential to having these kinds of experiences that, you know, and appropriate pleasures, and that that can actually be the true um, counterpoint to, to petty pleasures such as addiction.
And he's, he's going on about, I want to keep reading because I just, I really enjoy his writing and bear with me if you don't, but I'm going to read a little bit more and he's just talking about, he's juxtaposing, you know, those who are, who are trying to do things because of the Vi products and those who are doing for things in and of themselves. So he says, suppose you had spent an evening among very young and very transparent snobs who were feigning a discriminating enjoyment of a great port, though anyone who knew could see very well that if they had ever drunk port in their lives before, it came from a grocer's. And then suppose that on your journey home, you went into a grubby little tea shop and there heard an old body in a feather boa say to another old body with a smack of her lips, that was a nice cup of tea, dearie, that was, did me good. Would you not at that moment feel that this was like fresh mountain air? For here at last would be something real. Here would be a mind really concerned about that in which it expressed concerned. Here would be pleasure. Here would be undebauched experience, spontaneous and compulsive, from the fountainhead. In the same way, after a certain kind of sherry party, where there have been cataracts of culture, but never one word or one glance that suggested a real enjoyment of any art, any person, or any natural object, my heart warms to the schoolboy on the bus, who is reading fantasy and science fiction, wrapped and oblivious of all the world beside. For here, also I should feel that I had met something real and live and unfabricated, genuine literary experience, spontaneous and compulsive, disinterested. And I think we find ourselves in this world, a digital world, a world of information overload, you know, the world dominated by mind, you know, and we're constantly in this sort of analytical and disruptive and and I don't even think that necessarily that I'm, I'm not even talking about like intellectual or like super deep important analysis I think the vast majority of it is really fairly petty right it's constant you know it's not even all that important but we're just constantly taking pictures or whatnot so we're constantly in a certain mode and it's not necessarily say that it's good or bad or whatever but it's 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 just way too much and we're constantly in this mode and not in it for oh I need to really reevaluate my life and whatnot right and so I think so many of us are desperate for some fresh air for that fresh mountain air of something very real something very authentic and true and something that we get ourselves lost in for hours in a time you know at a time And I think that meditation is something that you see that's become bigger and bigger because people are looking for some way to counteract this, right? And meditation's fascinating because it's, in a sense, it's turning that analytical tool on itself. You sit down, you calm yourself, and you say, look, you got to stop thinking about all these other things. But the brain just can't do that. You can't just without training, right? So you you basically what you do is like, okay, let's take that analytical tool and let's turn it on itself, change the resolution and say, let's focus that down on just one thing. Very hard. Focus very hard and focus very minute thing of just your breath and your breathing. Right. And so that way you that's the mitigation and that's you're getting rid of all this excess. You're getting rid of all this other stuff. Right. And, you know, you sit for hours and you try to do that. And it's actually very, very hard. This is a discipline and something you have to really work on. But that's not the end goal, right? That was just an intermediary, right? Eventually, the end goal is to be able not to even have to work hard with an analytical tool, but just get in this mode and then you stop even thinking about your breath and then suddenly you're reconnected, right? And then you, you feel yourself, you're not separate and you're, you feel one. And then you don't just feel one with yourself. You just feel like you're part of the world and part of everybody else. And you, and you know, ultimately you're supposed to get to where you, you really feel like you're part of the life. Um, you know, that fruit of life, the slipstream, the experience and that whole thing, right? And, and that's fascinating, but there's always been parallel traditions to this. And I think in most cultures, right, that you can actually access this through action. And I'm thinking of like 
The classic one that most people know is is Zen and archery, right? And I tend to resonate personally more with this, right? So this is where you have something that you love to do, and it's a skill, and you just do it over and over and over and over again, basically to the point where you don't have to think about it. And your body just gets in this flow and gets in this mode and boom, you just start hitting bullseyes because your body knows what to do and you've gotten your mind out of the way and suddenly, you know, and then that's when all the the hokey language comes in, right? You are one. You are, you know, you're one with your bow. You're one with the arrow. You are the arrow. In fact, you are the bullseye, right? It sounds absolutely ridiculous and hokey, but it's basically language that's trying to get at the fact that you're trying to get yourself in a mode where you're not, you know, your ego is not just there, present, and and separate, right? But you, you've, you've fused yourselves, in a sense, back together. You've reconnected. And once you've reconnected, then you also become connected with the world around you. You become one, and you, you know. So, for me, that resonates more. And I, I, I tend to be the person that loses himself in some, some sort of art or endeavor or something that I love. And I find that I, when I lose myself, I feel, I feel like I have, um, in a sense, been renewed because, you know, I'm, I'm just as much as everybody else. I get tired of this analytical world. And I have a propensity to think too much sometimes. So I need to go out and just play soccer and just play till I'm, uh, till I'm blue, right? And, but, let me bring this back to taste. And I love this anecdote. It's part of our family. We tell this story often, but there was an intern and we have our interns over for suppers at times. And they were over, this was fairly early on. And um, Sarah had made a duck and she makes it, she makes sure she makes the skin all crispy. And there's just nothing quite like duck. We think of it as the poultry bacon. And anyways, this, this guy puts a bite in his mouth and his eyes just went wild, wide. And then he, he sort of half finishes bites and goes, oh my God, I think I just had a mouth orgasm. And it was just the best. It, you know, his pleasure was just the best compliment possible. It honored everything. But on top of that was his surprise. And that makes it authentic, right? Because we're these crazy beings, right? That we have our mind and we can be like, oh, I'm going to make a healthy meal. And because it's healthy, it's got to taste good, you know, and then we like work ourselves up and then maybe it's good, maybe it's not, but we tell ourselves it's good. So it got to be yummy, right? And then you're not really sure it may be good. It may be not, but did I convince myself, right? And you're all tangled up and everything. But right, if you're surprised, then boom, it's instantaneous. It's spontaneous, as C.S. Lewis says, and, and this is key, because now suddenly we have a potent anecdote to a junk food addiction, right? This was something, is something in its full of glory, so to speak, right? So we had, you were hungry, you had the reward, and it was the proper reward, and it was powerful. It was consummated in that reward and in that pleasure. However, this works really good for the personal, for the individual. But there's a difficulty in sort of this philosophy of pleasure. And that how do you bring this to bear on much uh, more larger conceptual things, right? So it's one thing to work with individuals, but I think directly to climate change, right? And the fact that we need to deal with carbon and carbon dioxide emissions, right? But this is a world of institutions. This is a world of of big business. This is a world where industry and <clears throat> corporations have unbelievable rights without any responsibility and without, you know, any morals really. And we are a world that's utterly addicted to these non-renewable energy things. We're extracting out of the earth. We're extracting all its resources. We are we're addicted, right? We're addicted to a consuming way of life. We're addicted to extraction. So how do we provide an antidote to this, right? To an addiction. We have to have something powerful. But what is? What is the true and integral reward that makes sense, right? Because we have to do all these intermediary steps, right? 
what we do is we put this artificial system of rewards and incentives and we say look we got to deal with this carbon so let's let's have some tax relief or let's have some sort of incentives that people go towards renewable energy you know or let's come up with a this system of carbon tax so that you have this balance sheet so that you got to do these positive things for the environment you know to to counteract the negative things you're doing right these are artificial they aren't like integral to the whole thing itself you know or you can have uh, social pressure right or you can have education you can have um, you know put the fear of God you can you can watch uh, the inconvenient truth and see all the dire consequences of what's going to happen right and, they, and they're probably all true but it hasn't really worked to change people I mean there are some people very motivated and trying to work on it but it hasn't really caught on and I think part of that is because we know it of the mind, but our heart isn't there. We don't really understand it. We don't have the foundation of the experience to really, you know, we, and the problem is we don't know the appropriate pleasure to it. We don't know the appropriate reward. So I'm going to propose a very hokey suggestion, but hopefully not sound so weird now that I've gone through this entire philosophy of pleasure. But I would like to suggest that the true and the natural reward the consummation and the natural reward of carbon sequestration is a mouth orgasm. And I mean that, right? So, and I think that mouth orgasm is not just for carbon sequestration, right? It's for all the th reasons why we do what we do. It's for all the hard work. It's for building the soil. It's for, you know, ameliorating the water table. It's for, you know, it's for the local reason. It's for the animal welfare, you know, it's for the nutrition. It's for all those things. But, Carbon sequestration and, and climate change and this whole carbon is one of those, you know, those really complicated conceptual things that how do we bring this to bear? How do we not just be an issue of the mind, but actually an issue of the body? And I think it's through taste. Customers at Farmer's Market, they talk to me, and I, I have such a deeper appreciation for them when they, when they understand all these issues and they're all working together and they have a good sense of it. But I got to tell you, that the best and really when I feel most honored and encouraged to keep doing what I do is when I get compliments about the taste. And it usually has an element of surprise on it. And they're like, dude, I had to tell you, that was the best damn turkey I have ever eaten for Thanksgiving. You know, or like, oh, look, and they pull out their phone and they've got this food porn where they just, you know, man, this pork roast, it just melted in my mouth. And that just, consummates everything that just basically it makes it worth it right so this is to say that taste is not just a cherry on top it's actually what connects us to the whole issue so something as huge and as grand as conceptual and as just giant of something as climate change we can actually participate in it through our pleasure. So it's essential. Taste is not just a cherry top. It's essential to the whole synergistic system. And this, it, it's much more powerful than altruism, right? Because it's in full glory. It's had its desire. It's had its, you know, it's had its reward, you know, and it's been consummated. I find that actually encouraging. Like here's something powerful enough, I believe, that can counteract and be an antidote to, to addiction. And what a hoot. To be able to do well by each other, to, to be able to be do well by the earth, all while by like tasting a delicious steak, right? All by while we're like striving to be a black belt, you know, in the discipline of pleasure. And that's no small thing. <laughs>